Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. What will it take for you to believe? And let me change that just a little bit to make it applicable to all of us. What did it take for you to believe? For everybody here falls into one of these two categories. You either believe or you don't. And you understand the context of me saying you believe. We're talking about Jesus, salvation, eternal life. That's what I'm talking about when I'm saying do you believe. We who have a substantial background in church and in uh, Christian teaching, biblical teaching, understand that believing goes beyond just acknowledging, yeah, I tend to think there's a God out there somewhere. That's not what we would call believing. What will it take for those who do not believe, who have not come to accept the fact that Jesus came to be our sacrifice for our sins, to purchase our salvation, to provide us eternal life, If you have not accepted that, if you have not come into a relationship with him, then you would not technically be deemed a believer just because you mentally say, I think there's a God out there. It's a a warm, fuzzy thought. But you're a believer when you come into accepting Jesus on that personal basis, committing your life to him, calling him Lord, and saying, now, from now on, I will confer with Christ about what he wants for me in my life. I will follow his direction. I will read his word. I will be amenable to the will of God and its revelation to me through the Word. And if you haven't got there, then technically you are what we would call, within that context, a non-believer. What will it take if you are not yet a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ committed to Him? What will it take for you to believe? For those of you that are believers, what did it take for you to believe. We're in the 20th chapter of St. John today. This theme of believing is one of the primary themes of this chapter. Now, let me say that the primary theme is the resurrection, unquestionably. This is the eighth division of the book of John. We only have one more division to go, and John just summarizes at the end of this book in the, in the next chapter. But this chapter... We're talking about the resurrection stories because there's multiple stories within this chapter, within this section on the resurrection that are worth studying. And these multiple stories all bring out the theme of believing. Now, the resurrection, let me just touch on that just for a minute. Most of you are aware of this. But the resurrection is everything, right? It's everything. What we are doing here today, we're doing because Jesus rose from the dead. Our entire belief system is all hinged on the resurrection. If Jesus were not risen from the dead, Christianity would be another in a list of many religions around the world of some 
sage that lived at some time in history that, that started a movement that people adhere to. Whether it be Confucianism, because Confucius... Uh, gave us a lot of witty little wise sayings for life. Or whether it be Islam, who follow the teachings of their founder. Or whether it be the Jews, who were based on the teaching of Moses. But all those others died and remained dead. And Jesus experienced death and rose from the dead, which makes him distinct among all the founders of all other movements and religions in the world. So everything about us is hinged on the resurrection. And Paul even said in his writings in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, which is the, the famous resurrection chapter as well, he said, if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is futile. It's useless. Why should I stand here and bore you if this is not a movement based on the reality of the resurrection of a man who for the one and only time in the history of man and ever shall be, conquered death, overcame the grave. If Christ is not risen, we're wasting our time preaching. If Christ is not risen, Paul says your faith is empty. Also, we're found to be false witnesses. We're all a bunch of liars. If Christ is not risen, because we have testified against God that he raised Christ from the dead. That's our message. And if he's not risen, we're preaching a false message. And if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless. Your faith is empty, he said. Your faith is useless. If Christ is not risen, we're all still in our sins. We don't even have any hope of redemption. It all hinges on that. Furthermore, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. So if he's risen, those who have already died in faith in him, they have no hope. For if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we should be pitied more than anyone. In other words, if we're just following a story about a Jesus that lived one time, but he's dead, he's gone, it's over, he didn't rise from the dead, we are the most pitiful people in the entire world because we're buying into a, a big lie. But he's risen. And none of those things that Paul postulated, if he is not risen, this would be true. None of those things, therefore, are true about us. It's all on the resurrection. So this resurrection chapter, the section, the stories contained in there are as follows. We have first the story of Mary Magdalene at the tomb. And before the story of Mary Magdalene at the tomb is over... John sandwiches in a second story, Peter and the beloved disciple at the tomb, which the beloved disciple is code for John. He never referred to himself personally. He always called himself that beloved disciple. And then we come back to finishing the story of Mary at the tomb, which is this is her second visit. She went to deliver the message, the body's gone, we don't know where it is, but she comes back to the tomb. That's the third story. Then we have Jesus appearance to the disciples behind closed doors. We have the story of Thomas. And then we have at the end of the chapter, John's summary of the main purpose for writing his gospel. Those are the six parts that are contained in this chapter. It really won't take as long to go through this as you are fearing right now that it might. The first part of this, and I'm not, I'm, I'm 
I'm not going to read the entire chapter, but I'm going to read a section of verses to get us started in this. I want to put under the heading of Mary groping in darkness, and I want us to experience the parallel of what it means for people to be groping in the darkness. Now let's read. Very early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been moved away from the entrance. So she went running to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and told them they have taken the Lord from the tomb. We don't know where they have put him. And then Peter and the other disciple set out to go to the tomb. The two were running together. But the other disciple, that would be who? You're listening. That's John. Ran faster than Peter and reached the tomb, which is an interesting aspect of this story. Was John younger than Peter? Or was just more determined to be the first one there? So John gets to the tomb first. He bent down because the stone has been rolled away. And he saw the strips of linen cloth lying there. May I pause for just a minute? I'm going to throw a freebie in for you. You all are probably acquainted with the Shroud of Turin. I don't know what you think about the Shroud of Turin. It's a shroud that somehow has an image that has been impressed upon it. And the image resembles depictions that we have seen of Jesus. So the Catholics holding this shroud of Turin in their uh, possession purport this to be the actual shroud that wraps Jesus, which doesn't agree with John's account of the strips of linen that had been used to wrap Jesus. So take it for whatever it's worth. There's not a lot of credibility behind the Shroud of Turin, so I don't think, if I were you, my recommendation is don't build your Christianity on that story. So there's these strips of linen cloth lying there. And here's the interesting part. John beat Peter to the tomb, but he didn't want to go in. There's something probably a little bit spooky about going into a tomb where a dead man was. And now you can't explain why he's not there. So John beats him there, but he waits for Peter. And when Peter shows up, Peter, being more bold, fearless, he just goes right in. So what good did it do John to get there quickly anyway if he had to wait for help? So essentially what we see is Peter holding John's hand. Come on, it'll be all right. Let's go in. Let's check it out. And Peter saw the strips of linen cloth lying there. And the face cloth, which had been around Jesus' head, not lying with the strips of linen cloth, but rolled up in a place by itself. Now, Josh McDowell explains this passage of Scripture this way. I know we think in terms of the shroud of Turin, all one piece that he had been wrapped in this huge fabric, blanket-like. But what... John is explaining, and what Josh McDowell explains in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, is that the, the head was typically, traditionally, wrapped separately so that there was a space between the body wrappings not connected to the wrappings that were used for the head. So when the uh, cloths, the linen cloths, the strips, were on this slab... They went in and they saw, here's the body wrappings, and here's the head wrappings. 
but there's no neck connecting them because the neck was gone. The neck went with Jesus. The strips and the cloths and the wrappings, they're empty. And whatever spices may have been placed upon that body before this tomb was sealed had collapsed the strips that were used to wrap the body. So we have evidence of nobody there. It's gone. John saw it. Peter saw it. And then John, the other disciple who reached the tomb first, came in and he saw it. And notice what it says. What did he do? He believed. Now this is where we begin to see the entrance into John's theme for the 20th chapter of his gospel is the theme of believing. John saw it and believed. And then it says, for they did not yet understand the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead, which is a little confusing. But the reason John threw that in is John believed because he saw the strips of linen cloth that contained no body. And for some reason, he was able to put it all together that he believed Jesus was risen from the dead. He believed. That's all it took for John. And evidently, it's all it took for Peter, they believed. Now, it was going to take more for some other people to believe. But he saw this, and John simply says of himself in that experience, basically, I walked in, I saw the place where the body was, the body wasn't there, I'm a believer. That's all it was. It's very simple. Now, the other Gospels reveal that there were as many as five and perhaps uh, more women who went to the tomb besides just Mary Magdalene. John doesn't talk about the other women. He, there was nothing that happened with the other women that drew John's attention. So John mentions Mary and makes specific note of the fact that she came very early in the morning while it was yet dark. Now, if you've been with me through this entire series in the book of John, You've heard me mention in other sermons that John makes mention of the time of day or the weather, and those things, they are subtle implications of some spiritual parallel. It happens every time John does this. He used that same technique in writing when he mentioned in the 10th chapter of John, it was winter when Jesus was walking in the temple area of Solomon's porch, which builds in your mind a, a cold, gray barrenness, which was exactly the spiritual state of that particular time when John was telling that story when Jesus was at the temple. It was spiritually a cold scene. It was a gloomy scene. He used the same technique when he wrote about Jesus dismissing Judas to go to the Passover meal and go do what he had to do. And John writes, now it was night. And the implication is clear that what Judas was doing was a very dark thing. And John was very aware of what he was doing. It was like, isn't that ironic? Like we would maybe observe a story today. Isn't that ironic that these people who are so evil live in a place that is so dark and drabby and drear. You know, you, we, we use that technique all the time as we see the irony between the behavior of people and the circumstances surrounding them. I, I'm reminded of the story of, there was a lady who 
lived in her basement her entire life. But she came and heard George Matheson preach and got saved, and she moved upstairs. And they asked her about it. What is it that made you move from your basement upstairs? She said, you cannot listen to George Matheson preach and continue to live in the dark. So you see, there is a parallel that we all use between weather and, and daylight and things into spiritual matters, and John is using this. So John says, by the way, he said, when Mary came, it was very dark. So Mary represents, in a spiritual sense, people who are groping in darkness to discover truth because Mary comes to the tomb, and it's obviously not enough light yet to distinguish everything clearly, but she sees the tomb has been disturbed. You have loved ones that are now buried in some cemetery somewhere. If you would go and visit the cemetery and see that their grave had been desecrated, that some been vandalized, you would be upset because we value those things. I know that we understand the person there doesn't know, but we care. We don't want to see tombstones toppled over. We don't want to see them defaced and, and tagged with graffiti. We don't want to see that. So we're offended. So when Mary comes to the tomb and sees the tomb has been disturbed. She's upset like you would be upset. Somebody's been messing with the tomb. And furthermore, the body is gone. She goes and tells the disciples something's wrong, something's happened at the tomb. And the other disciples go back, Peter and John, they investigate the tomb, they believe, they go, and they leave Mary. This is the second part of of uh, Mary at the tomb. And Mary stays behind, and she's weeping. She's weeping because the tomb's been desecrated. Mary's still in the dark. While she's weeping and wailing in front of that tomb, two angels appear in that very spot where the body of Jesus had been laid. And the Bible says one was sitting where the feet would have been, and one was sitting where the head would have been. And one angel says to the woman, why are you crying? See, angels are curious about things. We human beings are strange characters to angels. They get it. They understand. But they don't understand why we don't understand. Jesus is risen from the dead. The, the tomb is empty. He's risen, and the angels are sitting there looking at each other. What's wrong with this woman? This should be the happiest day of her life. So one angel finally poses the question, what is wrong with you? Why are you crying? Mary responds and says, they, whoever they is, she didn't care who they is, somebody, they have taken my Lord away. And I don't know where they have put him because Mary's still in the dark. She turns around and she sees who proves to be Jesus standing there, and she didn't even know it was Jesus, because why? Mary was still in the dark. Even though the sun was beginning to rise and getting a little bit lighter incrementally, she's still spiritually in the dark. So she sees Jesus standing there, and she thinks this must be the gardener. How embarrassing can that be? And Jesus says, why are you crying? And then he asks the second question, who are you looking for? And Mary says, sir... If you have carried him away, 
Well, as a matter of fact, he did. <laughs> if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will take him. Because Mary thinks Jesus is the gardener. And what? She's still in the dark. I suggest that the condition of Mary typifies all the people who are that close to the truth, and they are still totally clueless. Now, think about it. How many of you people know somebody like that? The truth is staring them right in the face, and they just don't get it. They're in the darkness. All the evidence is there, but they just cannot grasp the truth. It's confronting them. They don't get it. And there's a variety of little things in life that blind us to the truth. Let me suggest a couple of things. One blindness to truth is when we have preconceived notions. We already have our mind made up. Mary already had her mind made up. She was somewhat programmed to believe one thing only, that Jesus was dead. He should be in the tomb, and he's not. So she was pre-programmed to believe he was dead, and she was unwilling to accept the visible evidence in front of her to this point that he was alive. We have that same problem with people sometimes. The only explanation Mary has is not, well, he must be risen from the dead because she doesn't understand that he might do that. She thinks he's dead. And there's plenty of people that I've run into, and you have too, who just cannot grasp the gospel truth about God. They cannot grasp the truth about Jesus because they have what? Preconceived notions. They reject the true teachings of biblical morality because they have preconceived notions about that. And every generation that comes along has to fight through the preconceived notions that they've been programmed with in this world, in this society, if they're going to punch through to the truth of the Bible. Because this world will teach you things that are not true. And we have to punch through those things, but they come with preconceived notions. They might attend church with notions of believing that God is all right for some people, but he's not for everybody. It's a preconceived notion. They might come with their own set of moral standards. And in this world today, is anybody here going to doubt that this world teaches you that there's a variety of sexual aberrations that are just okay? That's all right. Because people are entitled to do whatever they want to do. The main thing is you got to love people. Now, see, that's such a watered-down message. Absolutely, we have to love people, but does it make everything that everybody does equally okay? What does matter is what does the Bible say about it? But people come with preconceived notions because they've not been taught what the Bible says. They've been taught that the Bible is a deeply flawed piece of work by mere man that's outdated, and for all practical purposes, they believe it's irrelevant to our modern culture. They believe God's a myth. God's a crutch for emotionally crippled people. They've been brainwashed by our secular societies. There's no such thing as moral absolutes. And that's a narrow-minded, judgmental thing if we call anything a sin. Because after all, it might be a sin for you, but it's not a sin for somebody else. See, that's, we've got a preconceived notions. We have preconceived notions that are crippling people today. And Mary was talking with Jesus and believed him firmly to be the gardener because after all in her mind he couldn't be alive I saw him die we buried him we closed the tomb the only possible explanation can be somebody opened the tomb and stole the body 
Another barrier that blinds people to the truth is pride. Because how many of you people understand and agree, we do not like being wrong. We just don't. And we certainly set ourselves up for deep disappointment when we start developing our own pet theories about the Bible, about Scripture, our own pet doctrines, our own pet theologies, and we think on this a long time. We put a lot of work into it. And if anybody dares to suggest we're on the wrong track, we get so horribly offended because it's ours. We thought of this. What's the Bible say? See, there's a lot of pride that goes along that blinds us to truth. To suddenly be confronted with inconvenient truth that one day every human is going to stand before God and give account for their life. You've got a majority of people who are living with the philosophy, God is unimportant. But the inconvenient truth, he's not unimportant. And every person will stand before God and give an account. When the Bible talks about every word that we speak is going to be judged, every thought that we think is going to be judged, it matters. God matters. He's not irrelevant. See, the problem with the Jewish leaders who witnessed Jesus doing miracles is they tried to continue to explain everything away because they had pride. Pride was, we know our religion. We know what you ought to be doing. We know the ceremonial laws. We know the restrictions on the Sabbath. We know these things. And he can't just come along and do this because we know. And when Jesus would come along and he would tell them that man was not made for the Sabbath, the Sabbath was made for man, it just flipped their world upside down. And in their pride, they could not accept plain truth because they didn't want to be wrong. You remember the time whenever Jesus healed the blind man? And the Jews came along, and what a mess they made out of that. They even suggested, well, maybe he was never blind to begin with. You know why? Because they don't want to be wrong. This, this just can't be. Things like this, don't, this just, just don't happen. So they argue with the man. And finally, the man gets frustrated with them, and he says, look, guys, let, let, let me put it this way. I'm no theologian, but I know what I know. Whereas I, once I was blind, now I see. That's the end of the story. Boom, deal with it. See, truth and reality trumps all the theories and the philosophies of mankind. And another barrier that blinds us to truth is we have this bias against the miraculous. We're just not prepared for the miraculous to happen anytime, anyplace. And once again, there's a couple of different groups of people here. There's, there's some people that see a miracle where there is no miracle. And then there's other people who can't see a miracle when it does happen. you got two, two sides here. And for the people who see miracles where there are no miracles, they're the gullible crowd. And the extremes of the people who cannot see a miracle when it does happen, they're the skeptical side. So somewhere in the middle of this is where we have to have a healthy sense of skepticism because without that, we become gullible. Now, without a healthy sense of skepticism, the charlatans, even in our day and age, have great success in their so-called ministries. You got Peter Popoff, who was discovered to be wearing an earpiece when he would have uh, 
supposed words of knowledge about people in the crowd? Well, it, he, they found out that he had people working for him that was working the crowd and meeting people and getting details about where are you from? Do you have any family? Is your family with you? And, and then they would whisper this information in his earpiece and he'd go out and he'd find this lady and these people would be back with these cards saying, well, this is the woman that comes from so-and-so city. And he said, are you from so-and-so city? And the people say, it's a miracle. He was a scam artist. Then we have the evangelists who were bringing in plants to make it look like they were getting healed. They would pretend to be crippled or sick or blind or deaf. They'd come up and the evangelists pray for them and then the people would pretend like they had gotten healed. And it set the places on fire because people saw miracles where there weren't. No miracle. But on the other hand, you've got people that are so skeptical that they don't want to believe. They refuse to believe. They got this bias against miracles. Mary, for a brief moment, had a bias against the miraculous. She had to try and explain it in the physical way. But a miracle had happened. Now, I believe God's still in the miracle-working business. I don't want, believe we need to be gullible. We don't want to follow fraudulent ministers. We don't want to be quick to call everything a miracle that somebody says is a miracle. But on the other hand, you have to be open to the fact that God still does miracles in this day and age. We have to believe in that. He doesn't want us to be blind. He doesn't want us to be gullible, he, but he doesn't want us to be blind and foolish. And if God's going to perform a miracle, I promise you he's going to provide adequate proof for you. I promise you that. Mary just didn't have her heart set on a miracle at this point. So Jesus says, here's Mary's point of belief. Can you catch the great theological construct of what Jesus said, made a believer. He said, Mary. She believed. She's crying. She's weeping. Where have you taken him? Where's the angel? She said, tells the angel, where have you taken him? She tells the gardener, where have you taken him? And Jesus said, Mary. He said, there you are. Because there's something miraculous about what the Holy Spirit can do when our heart is truly searching. Mary wanted to know the truth. She didn't know what the truth was. She was in a bit of blindness. But there's something miraculous that happens for Jesus. He had already, she, she should have known his voice. He was already speaking to her. He wasn't using an incognito voice. When he spoke her name, she came to the truth. For John... It just took the courage to go into the empty tomb, and he saw the linen stri strips, and he believed. For Mary, she struggled a little bit in darkness, but when he spoke her name, she believed. When Jesus, later in this chapter, walks through the locked doors, the disciples, the apostles, are behind closed doors. they got the shades pulled. they got the doors locked because they're afraid. Jesus has just been crucified. Are they coming after us next? In fear, they are huddling in this room. They think they're safe against everything except Jesus walks through the walls and appears before them, and they believed. Except in this group of disciples that were hiding out, Thomas wasn't there. So Mary believes. John believes. Peter believes. 
They went and told the disciples, and the disciples weren't sure about John and Peter until Jesus walked through. So it took a little bit more for the others. But then he walks through the walls, appears to them, and they believed. Thomas comes later, and everybody is now a believer. And so you've got Peter, you've got John, they've seen the empty tomb, they've seen Jesus, you've got the rest of the apostles, they've seen Jesus, all except Thomas. And they're all telling Thomas, I tell you, it's true. And Thomas says, can't be. Listen to us, we are your brethren, we saw him. I don't believe it. He said, I'm not going to believe it until I see the nail prints in his hand and put my finger in the wound. He's not thinking in terms of nice, clean scars. He's thinking in terms of a gaping wound where a nail used to be. If I could poke my finger in that hole, in that nail, I'll believe. And if I can see his side, his pierced side, and I can thrust my hand into that wound. Eight days later, Jesus finds the disciples and Thomas. And he says to Thomas, because Jesus was listening. How many of you know Jesus is always listening? He wasn't there, but he heard what Thomas said. He comes in, he goes straight over to Thomas and said, So, Thomas, I understand that you want to put your finger in my wound in my hand. You want to thrust your hand into my side. Here I am. And Thomas, he said, The Lord of me, the God of me. It translates, My Lord and my God. That's what it took for Thomas to believe. A little bit more than what it took for Mary to believe, which was a little bit more than what it took for John to believe. But what does it take for you to believe? Or what did it take for you to believe? I would hope that believing would be a simple thing for you. Because after Jesus met Thomas's criteria, his demands, he then said, did you believe because you saw? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. You're not going to have a chance like Thomas did to put your finger in the nail prints or your hand in his side. But Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. You see, around the world, the gospel message is preached. It's a very simple gospel message. Missionaries do not put together near as complicated a sermon as I put together on Sunday mornings because they're preaching to reach the lost. And they simply preach Jesus. I'm here to tell you about the Son of God who came and died on a cross for your sins. He's risen from the dead. And if you'll put your faith and your trust in Him, you can have eternal life. That's the simple message. And people come by the scores and they believe because they're not asking, well, I, I want to see this person first. I want to see the nail prints. I want a proof. I want somebody to do a miracle in front of me. They just hear the message and they believe. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit does a work. Like I had just said, with the simple gospel message, he does a work in people's hearts that all it takes is the simple proclamation of the truth and they believe. What is wrong with Americans that we preach the simple gospel message and they leave just as lost as they came? What is the problem that the Holy Spirit is not able to penetrate through these, these, these barriers that we have that, that makes excuses for saying, I don't have to make a confession of faith. I'm okay. I'm a nice person. Or that's okay for them, but it's not for me. Or I'm not sure I grasp this whole thing. What's, what is it with the simple gospel message can cause thousands to come to a believing knowledge of Jesus Christ in foreign lands where they've never heard the gospel?
Yet we present the gospel in the United States, and it goes like water off a duck's back. What's it going to take? For Saul of Tarsus, it took being slain by a beam of light, blinded by the light on the road to Damascus, a vision of Jesus saying, Saul, why do you persecute me? The husband of a woman who was attending my church in Alabama, she was a faithful church member, a firm believer. Her husband was not. He had no time for God, no use for God. Wonderful kind man. He used to bag several deer in the season and run down to the local smokehouse. Uh, Alabama's full of hickory smokehouses. And uh, have half the deer smoked or, or have the whole deer smoked and come and bring us smoked deer every year. He's a wonderful man. But he didn't have a need for God. Couldn't get him to church. Would not darken the door of the church for any special event, for any revival, for anything. Just didn't need God. This woman would make prayer requests for her husband often. She's being as delicate as she could. She would say, my husband has a substance abuse problem. What she meant was he's an alcoholic. Wonderful man. Friendly man. But he was an alcoholic and didn't need God. Until I got that phone call one day. And she says, Pastor, they just took my husband to the hospital. He's having a massive heart attack. I ran down to the hospital. They let me into the emergency room. He's there lying on the table, still having his heart attack, still in severe pain. I went up to him and I said, John, your wife is out in the waiting room right now. She is scared to death. She wants to know where you are spiritually. What am I going to tell her? Have you made things right with God? And he stopped me. He said, Pastor, you let her know I've already made things right. Now, you know, there's... there's there's ways that God can get you to think seriously about this. You don't want to wait until you're on the hospital bed, in the emergency room, facing death's door before you finally decide, I think I need God right now. I said, I'm going to go tell her that. I walked out and I said, Peggy, John told me he's made everything right with the Lord. Because I told John, I said, John, I don't know if you're going to make it or not. How's that for bedside manners? I did. I walked in and said, John, I don't know if you're going to make it or not, but Peggy wants to know where you are. I've just made things right. <laughs> well, good. It's about time. What's it take for you to believe? All it took was an empty tomb for John. All it took was speaking her name for Mary. All it took was walking through walls for the disciples. All it took was a simple invitation to Thomas. Touch the wounds if you think it's necessary. But he believed. All it took for some of you was a simple invitation at the end of the sermon. And for some of you, it's very possible you don't even remember what the preacher said. But you remember when the invitation was given. You walked up and you gave your heart and life to Jesus Christ. It's all it took. Just an invitation. Would you receive Jesus? Yeah, I think I will. It's all it took. All it took was a major heart attack for John. All it took was hitting rock bottom for that stumble bum of a drunk Mel Trotter before he turned his life over to Jesus Christ and became one of the greatest evangelists to alcoholics in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where his mission continues on today. But I'm telling you, Jesus can meet you where you are. And for people who are determined not to believe in God, for people who are devoted to their atheism, 
There is absolutely nothing that's going to move them. If that's what they want, and that's what they're determined. Christopher Hitchens, the famous atheist, began, he, he came down with cancer, and he was failing quickly, even though he was continuing to participate in some of these debates against Christian uh, apologists. He said, I don't care what I might say on my deathbed. If I turn to God on my deathbed, I want to make it clear right now that I am out of my mind and delusional because I do not believe in God. I will never believe in God. He didn't want any religious people around when he died because he didn't want them telling the tale of what it's like for an atheist to die. But the person who is determined not to believe in God, there's nothing you can do. But anybody who is looking for the truth, such as Anthony Flew, who at one time Anthony Flew was the most renowned, foremost atheist in the entire world. He was the guru for atheists, Anthony Flew. Wrote multiple books, There Is No God. Preached the message, There Is No God. Until the last few years of his life, he began to take inventory and saw life coming to an end. Came to the conclusion, There is a God. Because he was searching. He had not totally closed his mind, he was searching. And God revealed himself. And for people who are willing to call out to God and say, God, I'm not really sure if you're real or not, but if you are out there, that's all, that's all I want to hear you say. If you're having struggle, a struggle believing, if you'll just say, if you're out there, I think you're going to get God's attention right there. He wants that challenge. God, if you're out there. Now, don't be ridiculous. Don't say, give me a brand new Cadillac if you're out there. God's not going to play that game with you. But if you're out there, God, just let me know. Just reveal yourself to me somehow. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe, and how happy you would be without requiring all kinds of crazy proof just to this day, this hour, say, I believe. Bow your heads.